Hello, this is Father Mike Walker, and you are listening to Father Mike's Bible Study Podcast. It is a Bible study from a mainstream Catholic perspective. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation will be covered. And the purpose is to give the listener a working knowledge of the Bible and a basis for further study and prayer. We hope you enjoy this, and may God bless you as you study and read the inspired Word of God. Anyway, we'll begin with the prayer, since I forgot, I think, last time. <laughs> so in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, as we study this Gospel of Luke, especially as he is very attentive to uh, prayer in the church, and even in the life of Jesus reflected in his modeling, we ask you to help us to be able to have a little more insight into this Gospel, to understand it a little more clearly, and to be able to live out its uh, conclusions and its many ways that it guides us into discipleship. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Okay, so Luke's gospel is somewhat similar to Matthew and Mark, meaning it's part of the group of which we call synoptic gospels. So, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar in style and in content. Um, John is the, the most different of the four gospels. Um, but although Luke is very similar in some ways, it does have its unique character and style. And so we're going to look a little bit at the gospel, pointing out a few of the differences, but also um, looking at the characteristics of Luke's gospel and what is you know, important for him to get across, especially his, his emphasis in different areas in his theology. So first of all, let's look a little bit at um, where it was written and who it was written by. And we actually do have the name of the author of this book, because he says um, Luke. Now, Luke is actually a gospel, but it's a part of a two-part series. The first part is Luke, and the second part is Acts of the Apostles. And both of those two books were written by the same person. And so oftentimes you'll see in commentaries they'll combine Luke and Acts. All right, so Luke and Acts of the Apostles was written by the same person. It was more than likely written in Antioch or around Antioch. It was mostly written for a Gentile audience, but there is a lot of Jewish undertones in there and a lot of cross-references and theology that goes back to Jewish roots. So although he's writing primarily to Gentiles, he also has um, the ability to, uh, to include a lot of Jewish elements that were important for, for the followers of the church who might have been Jewish at the same time. It was written somewhere in the mid-70s or to between 70 and 80 AD. And some will suggest that it was written before the fall of the temple, which would be before 70 AD. But uh, most scholars tend to place it in that range immediately after the fall of the temple. And um, the reason why some say it was before the fall of the temple because Luke doesn't specifically mention it in Acts of the Apostles. And uh, they're not exactly sure why. The scholars who mention that he doesn't, um, the, those who think that it was after the fall of the temple, um, they say that he doesn't specifically mention it because it's really not pertinent to the whole point of the gospel going out, that this would have been common knowledge at the time. Um, there is something that um, happens in Scripture that we should keep in mind, and it's something called the oral tradition that's getting passed down. And they don't write every single thing down that they 
think is self-evident. Um, for example, like with the Eucharist, you know, sometimes people will wonder, you know, well, why didn't they write down the, you know, clear guidelines in the Eucharist and all this? And part of the reason is, is there's not a problem, and it's a it's a common um, accepted tradition. There's no need to correct things or write about things or reemphasize things that are already existing. Um, one example about how this takes place is um, it's controversies where the Eucharist tends to get written about. For example, St. Paul starts writing about it in 1 Corinthians because there are abuses that are happening and he wants to make sure that they're in line with what he has received and so he explains how the Eucharist is supposed to be celebrated. But it's only in response to some sort of controversy. And uh, the only time that that we hear a lot of these things that, that come about, it's because it's just accepted as part of that oral tradition that's continually passed down and lived out in the life of the church. Um, once again, try to keep in mind that um, Jesus rose around 33 AD. The church started then, and the first gospels were actually written sometime after 70 AD. So it's um, even Mark's gospel, which was a little sooner, but still, you're, you're talking a good 30 to 40 years before any of these gospels were even written down. And the reason is, is because those stories were being told in the church when they would gather uh, for the preaching of the apostles and also for the breaking of the bread. And so Luke almost takes that for granted, but you can see that in his expression, especially in Acts of the Apostles, he continually mentions these meals of Jesus, and there's a you know, certain reference there. And he also mentions in Acts of the Apostles uh, the many times that people would gather for the breaking of the bread. And they would do this on the Lord's Day, which is Sunday. So anyway, it took place, the writing itself, up probably around in Syria and Antioch. And it was written, as I mentioned, primarily for a Gentile audience. Okay, so we do have a bit of an outline. Let's see if I can... All right, so one thing to keep in mind is that the, the Gospel of Luke has a very linear progression. All right? it's, it's, in one sense, it starts in the temple and ends in the temple. I mean, it's kind of like this, this idea. It starts in Jerusalem, ends in Jerusalem. Because um, you've got the, the early prophecies and all this stuff happening in the first chapters, the beginning of God's promises. But then at the end, Jesus goes to his death in Jerusalem. But the main movement of the gospel is actually getting Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem. And so there's this, this progression where Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee and then goes to Jerusalem. And actually there's the, uh, the section there where in chapter 9, verse 51, says Jesus literally sets his face toward Jerusalem. So he's doing his Galilean ministry in his homeland, and then he sets his face to Jerusalem because he knows as any good prophet has to die in Jerusalem. And so that's the direction he's going. Now, Acts of the Apostles takes the gospel from Jerusalem to Rome. So you have a bit of a a symbolism here in the movement because on one hand, you have the movement from Jesus um, in his teaching in Galilee to Jerusalem, where where the temple is and the prophecies, the kingdom, the messianic uh, Mount Zion, all that happens in Jerusalem. And that's where Jesus, the Messiah, goes to his death. And then after the resurrection, then the gospel is not just for Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. So you have that symbolized in the journey from Jerusalem to Rome itself.
you know, the center of the, the Gentile nations would be considered in Rome. All right, so we've got in these different sections, uh, chapter one, you've got this preface, which sets the stage. And then you've got the beginning of God's promises, which begin after chapter one, verse five. So the, the preface is, it's like the world's longest sentence. It's like we had to do a, uh, I think I mentioned this before, like a word diagram or sentence diagram on this. Now, this is actually one sentence. So, seeing that many others have undertaken to draw up accounts of the events that have reached their fulfillment among us, so these were handed down to us by those from the outset who were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. I, in my turn, after carefully going over the whole story from the beginning, have decided to write an ordered account for you, Theophilus, so that your excellency may learn how well-founded the teaching is that you have received. It's a long sentence, obviously. Um, but that also talks about the purpose. He's writing this, this letter, or the gospel, to this Theophilus. Now, Theophilus, as a word, means God-lover. So they're not exactly sure if that means the God-lover is a particular person, Theophilus, or if that just means anyone who happens to love God. So there's kind of a dual meaning there in that word. And the point of the gospel is that, that Luke wanted to take all these different traditions, and after carefully examining them, he wanted to write an account of them so that later generations would be able to um, have the truth and the certainty of the truth of the gospel. All right, so that's his intent and his purpose. Okay, so we have uh, the beginning of God's promises after that. And that's where we have John the Baptist, the visitation, the annunciation. We have all those, you know, setting the stage for the Messiah to come into the world. And then after that, we have the preparation of Jesus' ministry beginning after chapter 3. And, you know, that's John the Baptist in his proclamation. After that, Jesus begins his Galilean ministry, and that's from chapter 4, verses 14 through 9, chapter 9, uh, verses 50. And then Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. So after the Galilean ministry, Jesus is en route to Jerusalem. And that's from chapter 951 until 1927. Okay, then Jesus is rejected in Jerusalem. So that's 1928 through 2138. And then after that comes Jesus' death and his association with sinners. You know, he's kind of being associated as a sinner. But that's uh, chapters 22, verse 1 through 23, uh, verse 56. And then finally, we have the resurrection accounts at the end, which is from chapter 23, 56 on to chapter 24, 53. So it's just a brief outline. You've got this preface, the beginning of God's promises, preparation of Jesus' ministry, um, his ministry in Galilee, his journey to Jerusalem. He's rejected in Jerusalem. He's put to death, and he rises. So this is kind of the linear progression of Jesus' ministry in Luke's gospel. Okay, so the style of Luke's gospel is one of an iconographer. Anyway, you all know what that is, right? Iconography. It's almost like a painting, but it's this two-dimensional thing. You'll see it in, in a lot of the, uh, like the Eastern Church, and you'll also see it. Um, let's see if we have, well, we have the St. Augustine one on the far side. But it's like a two-dimensional, looks like a drawing, but they would say writing. And you have the image that portrays the reality behind it. All right, so 
Luke is considered in the Greek church as the original iconographer, and that's because of his style. He paints a very nice picture, you know, and that's a way to look at it metaphorically. It's almost like Luke is the painter. You know, he's, he's describing Jesus and the gospel in a way that, that really brings it to life. Luke has the most polished and he uses the most educated Greek of all the evangelists. And uh, actually, probably for that matter, of, of all the New Testament, Luke writes the best, if you're looking at it rhetorically. You know, he's, he's got the, uh, the classical Greek style that, that he's using that um, is a little more eloquent. It's also a little more difficult to translate because it's, it's, it's a more complicated Greek. Um, but it's also one of the reasons why, if you ever tell someone that they need to read a gospel for the first time, I typically will say read Luke. Because Luke has a very good progression. Um, he's got a good style. He brings things to life very well. And he has a way of bringing in his theology in a way where it's not overburdening, but it helps to relay the story. And anyway, that's something about his style. Luke loves parallels. And he does this you know, through several sections of his gospel. Um, just to give you an idea here, I'll give you a couple one is you've got the birth of John the Baptist, and then you have the birth of Jesus, right? So there are two parallels that are very close to each other. So they are similar, but they're different. And they both describe a story with different people, but they're very similar. And then they, he layers them. And also you have the same thing going on with Zechariah and Mary. You know, like the Annunciation of Mary, and then you have the angel that comes to Zechariah. You know, Mary is... Um, given this proclamation that something great's going to happen with her son, and Zechariah has the same proclamation. Whereas Mary believes the angel, Zechariah doubts, and therefore he, he goes where he can't speak, or um, he goes well, deaf and can't speak and can't hear. But then uh, after a year, you know, everything comes good because he listens to his wife. But anyway, there's once again a good parallel going on there. Um, something else about something else about Luke is he he loves Old Testament parallels, and a lot of them are very subtle, and people miss them oftentimes because they don't have a good sense of the Old Testament. Um, but think about this, for example, that the Gentiles would hear these and they would say, "Oh, well, that's a great story," but then the Jews would hear it and they'd say, "Oh, that mirrors, you know, this um, Old Testament story as well." You know, so there's parallels between the New Testament and the Old Testament, even. Um, for example, the Magnificat, we all know that. You know, My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And it's, it's a song of Mary, basically. You know, she has this vision of the angel. The angel says you know, that I want to use you to bring the Messiah into the world. And she finally says, you know, let it be done to me according to your word, as soon as she understands what that means. And then she has that song that she sings you know, or, or says, whatever you want to look at it. But when you go back to the Old Testament, for example, Hannah, you know, there's the song of Hannah after the birth of, uh, she hears about the birth of, of Samson, and she has this kind of song kind of thing she does. Well, it's, it's very similar. So they, they also have these kind of parallels also. Give you an example of another one. Um, Mary, when she visits her cousin Elizabeth, she goes through the hill country and she's pregnant, right? And as she goes to the hill country, Elizabeth greets her and says, who am I that the mother of my Lord should you know, come to me, right? You all know that, right? Well, 
Does that sound familiar at all? It's like, remember King David, right? King David, when he had the Ark of the Covenant, he went through the hill country, and then when he showed up in Jerusalem, well, I, I, actually, I should backtrace. David was in Jerusalem, but the Ark of the Covenant was going through the hill country, and then when the Ark hit Jerusalem and David saw the Ark, he said, who am I that the Lord should come to me? So you, you've got these parallels that happen in Luke's Gospel. Um, that's just one example. So if you ever wondered about Jesus being divine, well, there's a very clear indication when you're, when you're saying that, that Mary is the Ark of the Covenant, bringing Jesus into this setting where Elizabeth says the same things that King David says, you know, the mother of my Lord, you know. So, so the presence of God was in the Ark of the Covenant. Well, in the same way, Mary is the new Ark of the Covenant, carrying, you know, the presence of God in Jesus in her womb. So, so uh, Luke brings out those little details in, in many great ways. Also, notice the terminology that Elizabeth uses, you know, mother of my Lord. You know, well, it, it was a little of a controversy until the Council of Ephesus that um, some were saying that Mary really wasn't the mother of God. She was just the mother of the flesh of Jesus, you know. But then they had this whole thing with Ephesus when they said, no, Jesus was a person from the beginning of his conception. He was divine and human. Therefore, Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was God. So it is correct to say she was the mother of God. Um, it doesn't mean that Mary, you know, created God or anything like that, but it meant she actually bore um, God in her womb. You know, because those who didn't believe that were the Nestorians. Anyway, let's not go into all that. But these, these actually were some of the arguments that the Orthodox Church made, meaning the right-believing Church made, when they were saying, no, you know, Mary really was the mother of God, because, you know, Elizabeth even says, the mother of my Lord. And these were passages that also were used in the Arian controversy when they were saying that Jesus was, you know, the greatest of all creation, but not equal to the Father. And they said, well, wait a minute, you know, remember this Ark of the Covenant thing? Well, that's the presence of God and Mary. How could that not be equal to the Father? You know, Jesus is divine. So, so Luke actually had a great way of kind of bringing those little subtle points out. So one recommendation, if you ever do read Luke's Gospel, whatever Bible you have, look at those little cross-references to the Old Testament and then look them up from time to time. And you're going to find all kinds of those sort of things in there. You know, references to the Old Testament that explain the new. Does that make sense? So, did you ever hear that one before about the Ark of the Covenant and Mary? And Kind of cool, isn't it? Yeah, kind of nice. Okay, so anyway. Um, kind of got carried away. Where am I at? Okay, so there are some sources in Luke's gospel, just as in Matthew. Um, Mark is a primary source. Um, also, there is this, this cue. I talked about that before in uh, Matthew. Because both Matthew and Luke share Mark's gospel as the primary source. But they have this other source that they haven't found. It's just they have very similar parallels between Matthew and Luke. And this source, they just they call Q for quell. Um, it's just a German word that means source. But anyway, there is or there was some source that, that was part of that. But Luke also has a lot of his own material as well that he picked up through um, his own church or traditions or stories that he gathered. And some of those stories, traditions, or um, 
or, or parts of his gospel that he uses are ones that are very unique to Luke, and they also explain a little bit more about his style. Um, one example of that is the uh, prodigal son. It's found in Luke's gospel. It's not found in the other ones. You know, so there are those types of stories. And um, Luke, of course, as we'll find out, is, is very much into compassion. He's very much into this discipleship model. And, and so that becomes evident in the way that he brings that out in the things and the stories that he includes and the actions of Jesus that he includes in that. Okay, so um, there also are fulfillment sections. Like when Mary's in the temple and Simeon sees her and says, you know, a sword will pierce you. You know, well, that was the prophecy, because Simeon's being a, you know, a New Testament prophet. And of course, it's fulfilled in the life of Jesus and ultimately his death when this, the sword that pierces Mary is watching her own son be put to death. But, you know, that's, that's an idea of, of these prophecies being fulfilled. And it just shows the, uh, the power of God to bring about its completion, you know, that it's whatever is prophesied eventually does come to its completion. And so, also this idea of repentance, um, Jesus even calls Jerusalem into repentance before he enters into the city. You know, how I'd love to gather you like a hen gathers its little chickens, you know. Um, the, the whole idea there is Jesus is all about people coming to conversion from the very beginning till the end. And even when he's on the cross, you know, forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they do. So Jesus is constantly calling people to conversion. And Luke is emphasizing that idea of personal conversion, which is part of that discipleship that we all share. Okay. Now, where am I at here? Okay, there, there is a bit of a purpose for Luke's gospel. And one was he was writing for a mostly Gentile audience, like I mentioned. But it seems that he also had some followers in his church that were Christians that were fairly well off. And so they may have been rethinking their own sacrifice. For example, if I'm a pretty well-to-do follower and Christian, and all of a sudden I'm seeing the persecution in the early church, and I'm seeing the hardships and the suffering, then I can also um, question, you know, do I have this right? And so Luke is helping those who would be Gentiles and trying to follow this way, which he calls it in Acts of the Apostles. He's trying to reaffirm that decision by really um, concentrating on the Gentile perspective. There's also the question, I think, and this is one of the reasons why they think it was after the fall of the temple, and that is, was God faithful to the Jews, and will he be faithful to the Christians? Because one of the questions that would have been floating around there was, well, if the temple fell, does that mean that God's promise to be, you know, to to keep and maintain the temple forever, you know, did he not do that? And so Luke is showing through his gospel that, well, actually God did do that because there's a new temple in Jesus. And not only that, he will be faithful to his promises for Christians as well. Okay, because people would be shooken a little bit seeing the temple being destroyed. You know, that was, that was a, a, a major event in the life of the Jews, especially, but also in the life of the Christians who, whose faith came from the Jews. So, <coughs> so that was one thing that 
that he wanted to show that God's promises were being faithful to the Jews as well as the Christians. It was just that, that God acted in an unexpected way. There's a bit of a question about how strict an observance the Christians needed to have to the Jewish heritage. And this was, for example, you know, do Christians need to be circumcised? Do Christians who, who aren't Jews um, need to follow the law to the same degree that the Jews do? And um, he, was trying to, he was trying to explain to the Gentiles uh, many of these different things, but also explaining that in Jesus you have this new covenant and this new direction. Now, of course, St. Paul would elaborate on that in his letters. But Luke, who was very closely connected to Paul in Acts of the Apostles, actually after a certain point, um, deals with uh, St. Paul almost exclusively. And he includes a lot of the Pauline thought in his gospel as well. So as the underlying theology and the references to how a good Christian um, you know, has to have that balance of keeping the teachings of the Jew of the Jewish faith alive in its fulfillment in Jesus and lived out in the church. Okay, so so now we've got some of the theology here. Let me do this. Okay, God is faithful in unexpected ways. Okay, so y'all know with the story of Abraham and Sarah that Sarah was up in years and God said that Abraham was going to be the father to the nations and then Sarah was going to give birth and she laughed and then all of a sudden she had Isaac, right? Which means laugh. So anyway, you have something similar, another one of those parallels going on with Elizabeth, right? Because Elizabeth was also up in years and this is when, you know, the angel says, for nothing is impossible with God, you know, which is a nice little quote, you know, nothing is impossible with God. So that shows uh, to a large degree, Luke wants to get the point across that if you are a disciple and you are following Jesus, that even when it looks like it's not going to happen, that, that God always keeps his promises and he shows this repeatedly throughout the gospel and most especially in the person of Jesus himself. You know, that here is the suffering servant, the just one who goes to his death unfairly and un, um, unjustly, but at the same time conquers death and sin and comes out the other side glorious and, and every promise is maintained. And so this is kind of part of that. There also is this, this current, uh, remember in the Old Testament classes I was talking about Anawim, I talked a little bit about it in Matthew's gospel as well because it's in there. Well, it's really in Luke's gospel. Now, just a brief recap. When the Babylonian exile happened in 587 BC, so this is almost 600 years before the time of Jesus, that the temple was destroyed and the important people in Israel were deported to Babylon. The only people who were left behind were the people who were the peasants and the unimportant people. And so the unimportant people were living in the land of the chosen people. And so there began to be a spirituality around that that said that, well, God must prefer the poor because they still can live in the land and the rich people can't. The rich people are are deported. So therefore, there was a spirituality that developed around this. 
this idea of Anuim. And the people who were left behind, they had nothing. They had no crops. They had no money. They had no resources. And because they had nothing, they had to depend on God for everything. And that's really kind of the key to the whole childlike theology thing as well. You know, when Jesus says, you know, be like a child. Well, the child has to depend on their parents for everything. Well, in a similar way, someone who's poor and destitute has to depend on God for everything. And the classic example of that is, you know, is the, the beatitude, the first beatitude in Luke and in Matthew. Luke just says, blessed are the poor, whereas Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. But they both are referring to the poor as a destitute poverty, not a working poor, but a poor that has nothing, so they have to depend on their very livelihood on something or someone else. And that someone else is God. And so therefore, those who are poor and depend on God for everything are portrayed as the perfect disciple. All right, you following me? So that, that all goes back to that Old Testament parallel once again, but it's really being fulfilled in the lives of the people who are the holy ones in Luke's gospel. And so you can see that, for example, even in the Holy Family, the way that they're portrayed. You know, Mary just basically says, you know, let it be done to me according to your will. And, you know, and Joseph, who um, just, you know, follows the the Lord's promptings. And, you know, all the, the holiest people, like in the temple, you have Anna, the prophetess, who didn't have much of anything, but she stayed in the, she was a widow and she stayed in the temple praying day and night. Um, These are examples of the poor destitute um, who trust in God for everything and have this absolute and complete dependence and trust in him. All right, so if you want to think about what you're called to be as a disciple, I guess that would be it. You know, just total absolute confidence and trust in God. It's kind of hard to do. But anyway, that's, remember when I was talking about Matthew, when he, when he sets goals, he sets a goal that's maybe um, something we may never reach, but it's in striving to reach that goal that holiness kind of enters into the picture. So anyway, that Anuim theology is part of that. Also, this, this whole idea of inclusion. So part of the, um, one, a good way to understand, or a primary way to understand why Jesus does a lot of the miracles that he does is because it's bringing people back into the kingdom. Now, there were people who were cast out for particular reasons. Um, there were reasons for cleanliness, r- ritual impurity, Um, people who had certain diseases, um, people who were considered sinners, and whatever it was, there are all these different um, categories of people who were outside of the possibility of salvation or the chosen people. And so Jesus' miracles, um, healings, cures, teachings, forgiveness, all those um, had a way of bringing people back and restoring them. And so it's much more than just healing. It's this idea of restoration, so to give you an example of this, last weekend we had uh, Zacchaeus. Here's, he's a tax collector, right? He's an outsider. He's, everyone just assumes he's outside of the possibility of, of forgiveness and, and everything else. But Jesus says, you know, he's a child of Abraham and he restores him. You know, I'm going to your house, I'm going to eat. And, and Zacchaeus, you know, has this conversion. Well, that shows, you know, he's bringing him back into the chosen people. Um, also, you have, like, let's say the woman who's hemorrhaging. Well, if you're hemorrhaging continually, then that means you are richly impure and you can't participate in the sacrifices in the temple. So you are an outsider when it comes to your ability to participate in your own faith, the Jewish faith. 
So the healing there makes her clean again so that she can participate in the temple um, sacrifices. Uh, Same thing with the lepers. um, Same thing with a lot of the people that um, have particular illnesses. It's this idea of people coming back and being included once again. So um, Samaritans, rich toll collectors, tax collectors, outcasts, the unclean, the poor, um, even the shepherds. You might not think of shepherds as being... um, you know, unclean, but in a sense they kind of were because they were always with their animals. So they, they didn't have a lot of opportunity to, to participate in the glories of God. So the idea of those angels appearing to the shepherds, you know, even that is, is another sign of Luke showing how one way or another Jesus brings people into that um, inclusion of the gospel and, and uh, that all people, even Gentiles, you know, are being brought into the kingdom. All right, so... There's also this idea of the mission of Jesus to restore sinners. It's kind of part of this whole inclusion thing. But um, I mentioned Zacchaeus, and that's a good example. But there's just one after another where Jesus, the first thing he says is, your sins are forgiven you. Oftentimes he'll say that before he even heals someone. Your sins are forgiven you. And that shows, first of all, his power to forgive sins on earth. Um, But secondarily, it shows that by forgiving their sins, then it restores them into um, you know, the ability to, to live out their faith, whether that be Jewish and then later Christian. Um, Jewish has a, a, a very strong emphasis on compassion. And like in, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Right? And, and once you hear that, you should say, Yes, that's Matthew. Because Matthew was all about this perfection of the ideal of the law being, being fulfilled in Jesus. And in Luke, he says, be compassionate as your heavenly Father is compassionate. So the, so the words of Jesus change there between Matthew and Luke. But they're emphasizing different, um, different qualities here. Because one is, you can say, be perfect as the Father is perfect. Well, God is perfect, therefore we should be perfect. And that perfection gets lived out. You know, how? Well, in Luke's example, uh, that perfection gives lived out in compassion. Because as you look at God, you say, wow, look how compassionate he is on everyone else. And then if that's the case, we should be compassionate just as he is. And that perfection of God is actually being presented through his compassion. So that's one of the perfections of God is his compassion. Did I lose you on that one? Okay, so, so although they're using different words, they're, they're saying things in a, a similar way, but Luke is pulling out that compassionate aspect of God, which he also brings about in the story of the prodigal son. You know, God being this you know, compassionate, loving, overwhelmingly um, forgiving and willing to run out and meet the son and and give him and restore him with all the inheritance that he'd lost. And, you know, it just kind of shows that, that attitude of God himself, you know, Abba, Father, and, you know, that, that hopefully we can imitate as disciples of Christ. Okay, so many of his stories were told from a female perspective. And some examples of that is, you know, you've got Mary, you've got Elizabeth, You've got the woman cured of the hemorrhage, hemorrhage, hemorrhage. You've got Mary Magdalene, and uh, you've got these these female followers. So I'm going to read one section here with the female followers because this is 
something unique to Luke's gospel as well. So chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. So now it happened that after he made his way through the towns and villages, preaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, with him went the twelve, as well as certain women who had been cured of evil spirits and ailments, Mary, surnamed Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, Joanna, the wife of Herod Stuart Chusa, Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their own resources. Okay, so, so it seems that Jesus has uh, this group of women that are also together with him, following, um, along with the disciples. Um, but at the same time, they're benefactors. You know, and that's, that's why it says, and many others who provided for them out of their own resources. And so this is where sometimes people say that Mary Magdalene was rich. You know, because, you know, they're, they're kind of extrapolating from this. I mean, they, we don't know anything really about Mary Magdalene that, other than she probably wasn't a prostitute like people think she was. But anyway, there's this um, inclusion thing that's going on with women as well in Luke's gospel. And if, if you read through that, you'll notice that, that uh, he's got a, a very special ministry that's, that's taking place there with women um, as well as the disciples. Okay, there's also, uh, in this sentence, there's something about um, Luke's, well, I guess how he treats money. Because on one hand, money's necessary, and he has benefactors, it seems, that, that are supporting. But also, he's showing that even Jesus had some benefactors. And it's not that money is, is um, a bad thing, it's just meant to be used in the right way. And so... There are times when he's critical of money. An example of that would be the story of Lazarus. Remember Lazarus and the rich man, unique to Luke. Um, you've got Lazarus, who is the poor blind beggar, you know, with the dogs licking his sores and all this stuff, and the rich man who, who just walked by and didn't even acknowledge Lazarus. Well, in the end, they both die. Lazarus is in heaven. The, the rich man is um, metaphorically in hell. And, and Abraham is you know, is kind of there as well. And there's this, this whole conversation about the Lazarus should have noticed and responded. I mean, not Lazarus. The rich man should have noticed and responded to Lazarus. And he had an obligation to use his money for the good of, of others. Okay, so let's see if I can find that. Yeah, use... Yeah, I wrote it in there somewhere. Well... Jesus says that we need to use money to win over friends, you know, and use money for the good of the gospel and the glory of the gospel. And he has all these different uh, examples of how we're supposed to do that in our discipleship. So in other words, he's saying that money's not necessarily a bad thing, but when it becomes selfish hoarding, then, of course, that's working against the gospel. Okay, so stories are told with a call to personal discipleship. For example, in Matthew's gospel, you, you hear all the Beatitudes like, blessed are, and then it gives these different groups, you know, the poor in spirit, the merciful. Um, in Luke's gospel, he says, blessed are you poor. So he's using the second person, second person plural. Um, but the idea there is he's speaking directly to the people. So Jesus is not saying, blessed are, like some subjective group. And actually, to be fair, Matthew doesn't really mean it that way, but Luke took, takes away all doubt. You know, blessed are you poor. Because he's trying to show that the Beatitudes are a description of a disciple. And 
hopefully the readers of the gospel as well as the hearers are going to know that they also are disciples who are blessed because they have some of these characteristics. All right, so Matthew has the Sermon on the Mount. Well, there you have Jesus, the new Moses, you know, delivering the law and this, the Messiah of the um, Mount Zion delivering, you know, the promise. Well, in Luke, it's on a plain. So Jesus gives his, his sermon on the plain and he does it directly to the people. And, and uh, that's just kind of a different emphasis, but you can have a bit of the same reality. And actually, if you go to Israel, you'll see that it, it's a plain that goes up to a mount. <laughs> it's kind of an interesting little area. Okay, so you've also got the 12 disciples and the 72 that are sent out. So you have the 12 disciples, which are the inner group, and then Luke includes the 72 that get sent out as well. So that 72, that represents the Gentile nations. So it shows that, that even in the beginning, Jesus recognizes that the gospel will be for the Gentile nations. That he starts with the Jews first, but eventually it will reach the ends of the world. 72 is um, traditionally the number of Gentile nations in the world at that time. So that's one of the reasons why he uses that number. Um, you also have Jesus who upholds the reality of the law, but it's the inner meaning of the law. Um, taken a little more from like uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel and Amos, the, the prophets who talked about this law, like in Jeremiah, coming from the heart and being lived out um, through love. And so just to give you an example of that, chapter 16, verse 17. So, well, I'll go start for 16. Up to the time of John, it was the law and the prophets. From then onwards, the kingdom of God has, God has been preached, and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for one little stroke to drop out of the law. Right, so, Jesus is talking about the law still being there, but it has been fulfilled in him, and therefore... It is entering the world in a different way, but it holds all of its inner truth. It's just being um, brought to its completion and fulfillment. Very similar to Matthew. Uh, Matthew talked about the law as something that, that is being fulfilled perfectly in Jesus, but because Jesus is the Messiah, it has been transformed into the new law, which has uh, a greater impact than the old law ever could. But the old law is... Um, present in the new, but it's just present in a much greater way. And, and Luke's basically doing the same thing there. Okay, so another aspect of Luke's theology is that people tend to be, the common people, tend to be much more receptive of Jesus than the leaders. And he points this out as like the commoner and the poor and the average person tends to be receptive to to Jesus' message, whereas the leaders tend to be stubborn and have a harder time buying into the gospel teaching that he offers. So just to give you an example of this, toward the end, chapter 23, verse 35. Of course, you can probably guess what this is going to be. Okay, so 
When they reached the place called the school, they crucified him and two criminals, one on the right and one on the left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. All right. Jesus, once again, his prayer forgiveness, you know, trying to call people to repentance. Then they cast Lot to share his clothing. The people stayed there watching. As for the leaders, they jeered at him with the words, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him also, coming to him, offering him vinegar and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Above him there was an inscription that said, This is the king of the Jews. And then one of the criminals hanging there abused him. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and then us. But the other spoke up and rebuked him. Have you no fear of God at all? You know, and so, so here you have the, um, the, the repentant criminal. So that was a fulfillment of the prayer that Jesus just prayed. You know, forgive them, they don't know what they do. And then you have part of that being fulfilled um, in that repentant criminal. Now you also have when they're summoned before Pilate, they're, the, the common people were originally favorable toward him, but it was the leaders that tended to be the ones that were inciting the mob mentality among the people. So, so anyway, there is kind of this, uh, a little bit of a polemic against the leaders who were not being open to the gospel, whereas the common people were more open to the gospel. Okay, so in Isaiah 61, you have this... Um, suffering servant of Jesus, not Jesus, well, in this case, yes, but in Isaiah, this this predates Jesus by, what was that, 600 years or so. And they have prophecies about the Messiah, but the suffering servant, you'll, you'll notice this type of language even on the lips of Jesus himself. The Spirit of the Lord is, is upon me, for he has anointed me, and he has sent me to bring good news to the, to the afflicted, to soothe the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to release those in prison, to proclaim a year favorable from God, and a day of vengeance for our Lord, to comfort all who mourn, to give them ashes for garland, a mourning dress, the oil of gladness. So, so it's this idea of this promise that is being laid out by the prophet Isaiah. Now, of course, when Jesus comes and begins his preaching, he uses that prophecy from Isaiah 61. In chapter 4.18, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, to let the oppressors go free, and to proclaim a year of favor to the Lord. So Jesus is actually saying that I am the fulfillment of that 61st chapter of Isaiah. And so just as all the Jews would have known these prophecies from Isaiah, Jesus is saying, I'm him. Now, of course, this is the the world's quickest homily. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the assistant, sat down. All the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to speak to them. This text is being fulfilled today as you are listening. Anyway, it was the world's shortest homily. But, uh, but what he's saying in that is much more than just, you know, I've come here to be nice to people. He's saying that this suffering servant of Isaiah is going to be fulfilled in him. And the suffering servant in Isaiah was one who was going to bring about through his suffering the salvation of the people. 
At this time, they were thinking the people of Israel. And here, Jesus is saying this because they will look back and remember that his suffering bought salvation of the people, but not just the people of Israel, but the new Israel, which is the church. So once again, a parallel, which brings about a fulfillment of a prophecy. Okay, so something else about Luke is that Luke loves the Holy Spirit. Now, they all love the Holy Spirit, but Luke especially writes about the Holy Spirit quite a bit, and he includes it in ways that the other Gospels don't. So, for example, um, Mary, filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, they'll, they'll use this filled with the Holy Spirit um, formula to describe that. And, you know, one, one difference of example is, okay, so chapter 11, verse 13 What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, would hand him a snake? Or if he asked for an egg, hand him a scorpion? If you then, evil as you are, know how to give your children what is good, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? See, so Luke says specifically the Holy Spirit. Now, if you look at at Matthew and Mark, it actually doesn't mention the Holy Spirit. So Luke is just kind of filling in what the greatest gift is. You know, how much more will the Father give to you what you need? You know, where Luke says, well, what you need is the Holy Spirit. So how much more will the Father give you the Holy Spirit? So he's just kind of filling in the blanks there. Um, but also, there is a often a classification where they say, like some scholars or theologians will say that the Gospel of Luke is the Gospel of Jesus, and Acts of the Apostles is the Gospel of the Holy Spirit. Because after Jesus dies, rises from the dead, You've got the Pentecost story, and then you have the Spirit going into the church and the church going out into the world and the Spirit just being um, involved to really uh, push the gospel out into the world. And actually, the apostles, the Holy Spirit just, you know, is over and over mentioned in, the, in, in that part. And remember, they're both written by the same author. Now, I, I mentioned this, I think, in the past, but Luke was just a nice guy. So... He, he tends to write in a way that, that tends to tone down um, things that are a little crude or barbaric, and he also tends to write in a way that is just a little more forgiving. And he makes excuses for the disciples, for example. Well, you know, the disciples, yeah, they didn't get it right, but you know, Jesus hadn't quite filled them in yet. You know, he'll, he'll kind of do that sort of thing. Um, like, for example, in, in uh, Mark's Gospel, You've got the story of, of Jesus as he's being scourged. And they're, they're, put, they're taking a crown of thorns like Mark. He's, they say that, you, that he's taking the thorns and making them into a crown. And then they're sticking it on his head. And they're hitting him on the head with a, uh, with a stick. And they're writing all this, putting the robe on, tearing it off. And it's just kind of a little more brutal. Whereas Luke doesn't mention any of that. All he says is that he was scourged. You know, so, so Luke tends to sanitize a little bit, kind of make it a little, little less graphic, I guess. And, and he really does make excuses for the disciples. Like, here's one, chapter 9, verse 45. So Jesus is saying, The Son of Man is going to be delivered to the power of men. But they did not understand what he meant. It was hidden from them so that they could not see the meaning of it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. So it's kind of like Luke saying, you know, well, you know, 
they didn't have all their facts at the time, so give them a break. You know, so that's why I said Luke was a nice guy. Um, also, here's another one. Um, Mark chapter 942 talks about anyone who leads these little ones astray. It'd be better for them if they had a millstone tied around their neck and they were thrown into the creek, right? So let's look at Luke's version, chapter 17. Verse 1. Okay. He said to his disciple, Causes of falling are sure to come, but alas for the one through whom they occur. Whoa, wait a minute. I got this backwards. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone around his neck than to be the downfall of the single one of these little ones. Okay, so that's Luke. Now I'm curious. I've got to go back to Mark chapter 9. 42. But anyone who is the downfall of one of these little ones who has faith, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a great millstone hung around his, hung around his neck. And if your hand should be your downfall, cut it off. Better for it to enter crippled than the hands to go into hell. So it's like Luke kind of says, well, let's not kind of get into all that, you know. So, but anyway, in general, Luke tends to be one who just kind of, kind of makes things a little more orderly and sanitary. Like in Mark's gospel, they crash through the thatch roof to drop the paralytic down in the middle. And Luke's gospel, they carefully remove the tiles, you know, as they drop them down. So he's the civilized gospel guy. Okay, so Luke is writing somewhat as a historian. So he wants the people to have, they want the people to be able to have some sort of assurance in what he's writing. And so that's why he says that he is going to apply careful detail and write diligently about the occurrences so that people can have confidence in what they know. And then um, something else about these little descriptions, because it's the Gentile audience, he'll say little things like, Capernaum, a town in Galilee. You know, so he'll have these little little fill-in things to kind of help people to be able to follow along who might not be of, of the Jewish world so much. Um, yeah, I mentioned that Luke is one of, of prayer, but uh, Jesus is also one of prayer. He's also one who likes to eat because there are several uh, meals that he has in the Gospel of Luke. There are actually seven different meals. And every time there's a meal... You know, that's, that's kind of a bit of a transition. So it's oftentimes like a meal with the Pharisees, you know, and different, um, Simon the leper. And anyway, there's these um, different meals. But that's also a bit of a tie-in into the Eucharist as well. Um, on top of this, Jesus prays more in Luke's gospel than in the other gospels. And so um, Jesus, before he goes and selects his disciples, he goes off into a quiet place and he prays. And then after he's done praying, he selects his disciples. Um, he's showing a model for the church, that the church should imitate that example of, of Jesus himself, who prays before he acts. So it kind of shows that. And then uh, that's pretty much it. But I'm going to... So the first prologue showed what Jesus, or what what Luke was doing when he was writing... Um, the Gospel of Luke. Well, this one is the beginning of Acts of the Apostles, so you can see where this is kind of the transition here. 
So he says that in my earlier work, Theophilus, now Theophilus, of course, is God-lover, I dealt with everything Jesus had done and taught from the beginning until the day he gave his instructions to the apostles he had chosen through the Holy Spirit. Okay, see how he chooses the disciples through the Holy Spirit through his prayer, right? And he was taken up into heaven. He had shown himself alive to them after his passion by many demonstrations. For 40 days he continued to appear to them and tell them about the kingdom of God. While at table with them, he told them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for what the Father had promised. It is, he said, what you have heard me speak about. John baptized with water, but many days from now, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. All right, so this is the beginning of Acts of the Apostles, so you can see where this is leading, right? So the first one, he says that Luke was written so that people can understand what happened with Jesus and what he, why he did what he did. And then the second part begins with Acts of the Apostles, where you've got the fulfillment happening through the power of the Spirit entering into the church, and then that would go out into the world. And then the end destination would be Rome, which is symbolically the capital of the known world back then, the Gentile nations. All right. There's a lot of stuff there, I know. But anyway, is there any questions about any Luke stuff? Easy stuff, right? Okay, so next week, uh, do we have pastoral council next week? Okay, so we won't, have, we won't have the Bible class next week, but the following week we will. And I'll try to get, I think we can get to Paul. So we'll do John and then hopefully at least get to the first part of Paul before our Advent break. So, all right. So if you want to read ahead, read John. That's a fun one anyway. So deep theological stuff. All right. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. May God be with you and continue to bless you as you continue to deepen your love of God's word in your prayer and in your study. If you would like further information, please go to our website at shepherdcatholic.com. You will find some notes and some references and additional things to help you in your love of the scripture. May God bless you.